This is an ABC podcast. Have you ever noticed how big smartphones are getting? Look, it's kind of like holding on to a dinner plate. And if you've got two small hands, maybe you're a woman, it's getting pretty difficult to just grip onto that thing. It does fit into a male hand. And if you are testing mainly on men, and if mainly men are designing your products, these kinds of errors are going to creep in. This week on Download This Show, the data gap. How the databases that run our world, touching everything from your bus schedule to voice recognition technology to, yep, the size of a smartphone, are dominated by men. Also, when good fans go bad and Facebook in trouble again, this time over what they're doing to your mobile phone number. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ariel Bogle and welcome to Download This Show. And as you've probably realised by now, I am not Mark Fennell. I think that lucky guy is on a beach somewhere, maybe taking a week off. Probably not. He has like a thousand jobs, right? It's International Women's Day week here at the ABC and all across our shows, women are taking over, including here. And also joining me today are two powerful women, Claire Riley. She is senior editor at CNET. Welcome, Claire. Thanks for having me. And Ray Johnston. She is the editor of Junkie. Thanks for having me as well. We're going to talk about something serious to start off with. So in the United States, the HBO cable channel recently screened Leaving Neverland. This is a documentary in which two men say Michael Jackson, the famous, famous pop star, repeatedly sexually abused them as children. There's naturally been a lot of conversation about this documentary and concern about it. But also a lot of people pointing out how Michael Jackson's fans are behaving on social media. They've been swarming critics, uh, talking back to them and attacking the two men and their reputations. And in some cases, it seems like they're highly organized. So, of course, fandom's nothing new. There have always been fans of celebrities. But, Ray, is there something new going on here? I don't think that this is anything new. I think what we're seeing here is it being more of a mainstream topic that people are more familiar with. You know, Michael Jackson is known to pretty much everyone in the whole world, whereas these sorts of coordinated attacks have usually centred around more niche kind of fandoms, you know, things like comics and video games. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is people noticing that this occurs sometimes for the first time. Right. So, Claire, for people that are not familiar and might not be on social media, not as online maybe as we are, what does this kind of fan swarming look like? Um, well, first of all, if you're not on social media, well done. Try and stay off for as long <laughs> as possible. We're talking about really basically using the tools of social media to kind of co-opt conversations. So that might be uh, co-opting a hashtag, which is a sort of a, a link that can be used to tie conversations together. In this case, they might take hashtag Michael Jackson and flood it and spam it with lots of really positive stories. They might go after individual journalists and attack them personally. It's also started to pivot off in really weird ways to supporters of the documentary, so not just journalists, but I noticed one of the particular accounts uh, had really started to go in in the attack on Oprah, who's obviously been quite vocal in support of this documentary and support of the uh, claimants who were saying that they were sexually abused by Michael Jackson. So there were just threads and threads about Oprah, and I was like, first of all... <laughs> 
don't touch Oprah because that's that's a sacred space. But I think we see this a lot and um, Ray's absolutely right that it's gone mainstream. We might have seen this traditionally, people would know it probably from the anti-vaxxer movement, climate change denialists, maybe flat earthers, people who have conspiracy theories and they're so keen to use the tools of social media to control the conversation. And it's not just about saying that my facts are right, but it's also a really basic misunderstanding of what makes a fact, which I think is a really interesting thing here. The way stories are told and uh, the way people justify and back up their arguments to think that, well, okay, a New York Times article might use three sources, so I'm going to cite three sources, or I'm going to point to three videos that have all of the hallmarks of conspiracy theories, mm. you know, long screeds about a particular topic or videos where you zoom in onto four pixels in the corner of the frame. That's what we're starting to see. And it's also sometimes the same tactics used by people that try to deploy fake news. So, um, particularly around the US elections, we saw a lot of conversation on fake news spreading on social media. And there were actually targeted campaigns to get people to uh, pivot the conversation to the way these, you know, uh, fake news spreaders wanted the conversation to be framed. They might even start false flag kind of fake arguments on a totally different topic to get people distracted. You know, do you prefer X or Y? Suddenly people are so busy focusing on that, they don't have time to talk about the real story, which is often maybe a bit slower or a bit more boring or harder to justify or a bit more serious. So there's so many different tactics employed. Yeah, I think that one of the key points there is that they are fans, like absolute rabid fans of Michael Jackson. And we do see this in fandoms, you know, across the spectrum of pop culture. When something has been such a huge part of your life, it might be something you know, where you've seen yourself represented for the first time in pop culture. It, you know, it might be something that had a, a profound impact on you at a young age. It becomes part of your identity and part of who you are. And well, Why do you think this documentary in particular, what's in this documentary that challenges Michael Jackson's fans to this extent? Yeah, look, I think that there have been you know, rumours around this sort of thing for a very long time, but I think with the current climate that we're in, where you are seeing a lot of people that have suffered at the hands of abuse come forward, and we're now at a point in time where we're seeing them more supported than they have been previously, I think that there's a huge fear among fans that they are going to see their hero crumble. Also, I think the fact that because he has passed away and isn't here to defend himself is fueling them to defend on his behalf. Claire, what do you think? I think when you identify so much with a particular niche and that's what fandom is, your identity is defined by that thing. And so when someone attacks that comic or that character or that famous celebrity, they're not just attacking that external thing, they're attacking you. Yeah. So people really internalise it in a way that is quite unrivaled. So in this documentary, it's really about two um, men now, but at the time when they went to live with Michael Jackson, it's about two men who were invited into Michael Jackson's home as children to spend time with him, live with him. In some cases, they allege that he separated them from their families and engaged in sexual acts with them. This is not new to the Michael Jackson narrative, but I think in Leaving Neverland, as the documentary is called, it stirs up things that people thought were dormant. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Michael Jackson's not around to defend himself. So there's this question of whose responsibility is it to control fans' 
reactions? Do they do celebrities who have fan bases that go after critics or go after um, people like the people in this Leaving Neverland documentary? Is that anyone's job to stop them? Look, I think in this case it's incredibly difficult to say that it is anyone's job to stop this. Obviously the sites themselves, you know, they have certain standards of conduct that users need to abide by if anyone is inciting violence or hate or doing the sorts of things online that obviously should see them banned. Then the platforms have a responsibility. But usually I would say that if you are a celebrity and you have a fan base that's you know attacking people that don't agree with something that you said or attacking another celebrity, you do have a responsibility to stand up and go, hey, I don't want you to be doing this. This will actually hurt me. Stop it. Uh, which in some cases I think would have a pretty major effect. People hang on the words of these people so much. But when you've got the celebrity that's passed away and it might not necessarily be in the best interests of their family or the people looking after the estate to come out and say, no, don't go after these people, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Yeah, I think there are multiple levels to this as well. So when you're talking about flame wars between Swifties, Taylor Swift fans <laughs> and Little Monsters, Lady Gaga fans, I don't know if there is a flame war there, but let's let's say there is. You know, you Kim might... Kim K fans. Yeah, Kim exactly. Kardashian, yeah, Kim Kardashian yep. fans. I mean, gosh, the tribes on the internet, right? But when you have celebrities that are kind of leading these packs, those celebrities are pretty well known for being fairly empowering and being really good with their fans. And so if there started to be these things popping up, I think they'd probably try and want to stop that because it's part of their personal brand that yeah. they want to manage. Then you've got the people who are much more problematic on the internet and they won't necessarily endorse the action of their fans, but they kind of turn this blind eye that allows it to happen. So really common on platforms like Twitter is to share the comments of someone who is, uh, if I'm a, if I'm a celebrity, I share the comments of someone who's criticizing me and I retweet them. And so suddenly you get these pylons where everyone, all of my fans are piling onto this one journalist, this one person. Um, but then you've got the case of Finding Neverland, right? Where you've got a deceased celebrity, but also this is beyond flame war. This is, this is a, has legal implications and there are cases going through the courts. And obviously we're not talking about you dissing my street cred. We're talking about serious allegations made in documentaries. I think that's where fans could maybe just say, yes, we want to defend someone. It's very difficult. I rationalised it and was sort of thinking, how do I stop listening to Michael Jackson? He's great. I love his music. This is really hard. But then when you've got a legal process that needs to follow through, that's where it becomes a different matter. This is Download This Show on Radio National. I'm Ariel Bogle and Ray Johnston and Claire Riley are my guests. On to another social media platform that people are often mad at. Surprise, surprise. It's Facebook again. This time people are a bit up in arms about what they're doing with people's mobile phone numbers. Claire, what's going on here? Okay, so a really valuable and important tool on social media when you log into an account is called two-factor authentication. So you're probably used to logging in with, I'll call it joeblogs at Gmail. Again, you might use Facebook and you type in your password. If you're signing in from a new computer, a really good way to secure yourself is to 
require that website to get a second piece of information from you so that if someone hacks me and they get access to my email and password, they can't just use that to log in on a new device, uh, change all my passwords and lock me out of everything. Two-factor means that anytime you're not on a recognized device, so it won't hassle you when you're at home or on your work computer, but say you log in from a friend's house or say a hacker logs in from a different computer, it's going to require either a text message that's sent to you, sometimes you get it for banking uh, transactions, or in some cases, um, probably the preferred case is a an authenticator app like Google Authenticator, which is what I use. And it's probably the preferred method because what Facebook has done is they have taken the phone number that people were using, being good about securing their accounts and saying, I'm going to be a good, secure person. And then they've made it possible for that phone number to be used to look anybody up. So whilst you can hide your phone number from appearing on your page, or you can make it visible to everyone if you want, um, it is possible if, say, I'm importing all my contacts from my phone that I'll be able to find you because your phone number's in my phone. So that's problematic for privacy and it's something that was supposed to be a good feature for people doing the right thing and now it's been co-opted. Ray, is the mobile phone number, is this more personal, more special to people, more worth protecting than the email address which people give out online all of the time? Yeah, I would say so. Um, f- you know, for me personally, absolutely. If someone calls me, that's horrifying. I don't want that to happen more. Mm. Um, but no, I think, you know, people have attachments to phone numbers. They've had them for very, very long times. So they don't want to have to change them. And it does make that accessibility way more immediate. It also can be used in a multitude of different ways where a email address can't in order to, you know, co-opt identity theft and, and all sorts of things like that. I, I think that Facebook are moving the goalposts. By now, we should realise that we can't really trust Facebook that they're going to do what they say they're going to do with the information that we've given them. I think that this is just a further erosion of people's trust in Facebook. We're seeing it escalating over the years. So I think people are a bit more angry about this now. It's so important to remember that we do throw around our emails and quite often our phone numbers pretty willy-nilly, but it's really important for us to reconsider that. I know there was a telco in Australia that was actually trying to get this move off the ground to allow people to have virtual mobile numbers. So not a mobile number tied to a SIM card in your phone, but maybe you have your phone number that all your work contacts use to contact you. But then you have a more sort of generic spammy number that if you lost access to it, it wouldn't be a deal breaker. I've had, you know, the same phone number as I'm sure we all have for a really long time. And if it's used for two-factor authentication, you use access to that, you have lost access to your entire digital life. Same goes for your email address. I have my Gmail address and then I have a kind of a more, you know, I'll use it for email sign-up lists Mm. or um, loyalty clubs, things like that. That's a Hotmail address because I kind of see that as the one that I'm happy to get a little bit dirtier or that's the yeah. that's the house that I'll rent out and, you know, let people have a spare <laughs> key to. But my own house, I won't rent out because when you're using that email address, my Gmail for me, if I have access to any account, so whether it's my Ticket Tech account, whether it's my second email address, whether it's my banking, all those sorts of things, all of my identity is verified by an email coming into Gmail. So if someone gets that, they have the keys to the kingdom. They can go into secondary accounts and say, can I get a password reset? It's like, sure thing, get a password reset to your Gmail. Suddenly they're changing your Facebook, Twitter, internet banking, Ticket Tech. You're making all- me uh, yeah, so, so stressed. So <laughs> the tip then, if that's terrifying, 
want to just like make it terrifying enough, <sighs> but then just say, be really protective with your primary email address and the one that you use for the important stuff in life. Be protective of it. Have a complex password that you don't use anywhere else. If you're going to have a password that you use for 50 things, I'll tell you not to, but make sure your Gmail, your primary email account doesn't have a password you use anywhere else and secure it with two-factor authentication. You can go on to the iOS or Google Play Store and get Google Authenticator and it's a little app on your phone that generates a six-digit code every 60 seconds. You can use it to log into your account so you need your phone and someone who's hacking you would need your phone and you don't have to do it every single time you log in. Once your home computer is recognized, cool, bam, it's done. But protect your email, one password for your email that you don't use elsewhere and do two-factor but with an app. Very good security advice. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm on a bit of a rant, but also I thought on, I'd just jump in with the opportunity. Yeah, and also on online forms, I now just like do 040000, you yeah. know, whatever is mm. required. But to bring it back to Facebook, I just want to say their statement to journalists around this issue of being searchable by mobile phone is that, look, it's nothing new. The setting applies to any phone numbers you added to your profile. You can make yourself searchable by friends alone rather than the whole world using your mobile phone number, but you can't switch it off entirely. And just quickly raise this defensiveness from Facebook around this something new or are they're just doubling down, I guess, on this mobile phone issue. It does really feel like doubling down, doesn't it? They're saying, look, this is a thing that we need for a purpose that we are not disclosing as yet because when asked what they're going to do about this in the future, they're like, oh, we, we can't really talk about that. We can't really comment on that. Mm. So obviously this is something that will be utilised by Facebook in the future. And uh, if and they build the feature in, it's very easy to quietly change the exactly. terms of service in future so that that feature can be used for other purposes. Yep. Not just with Facebook. That happens with so many platforms where they'll have a feature that seems like an invasion of privacy and then it's kind of like, oh, well, it's fine now. And you're like, well, are we only going to hear about it in four years time because yeah. you'll change something and we won't have noticed you know yeah, exactly and who reads the terms of service the first time and then the 50th time that they're updated like you know I'll usually give things a scan and go but if on oh, no. <laughs> a good face <laughs> and then just download things anyway mm. because, because you can't trust what's going to happen in the future but yeah it, it is absolutely doubling down I also don't necessarily want people that are even just on my friends list to have my phone number mm. No, I it's want, a bit creepy, I would have to say. I want them to just be able to contact me on Facebook and nowhere else. Don't yeah. call me. That's Never why I got Facebook, not yeah. phone book. Phone book. Oh. Ew. Wait, phone so, book's already a thing. You're, yeah. listening, <laughs> you're listening to download this show. I'm here with Claire Riley of CNET and Ray Johnston of Junkie. So we're all women in tech here. We love tech, but it doesn't seem to always love us back. At the moment, I'm pretty annoyed by how big smartphones are getting. I can't like fit that thing in my hand. And the British writer and activist Caroline Carrado Perez has spent the past few years investigating the data that underpins how our technology is designed, how resources are allocated, how cities are built, and the results are troubling. She's found that men are still largely treated as the default and women atypical. And she tackles all of this in her new book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And she joins us now from London. Caroline, thanks so much for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. So it seems you've had an interesting few weeks on Twitter <laughs> since some of the coverage of your book has started to come out. Yeah, it's gone a bit bonkers. I've just had so many women tweeting me, basically saying, God, thank you so much. This is my life. And just giving me examples of how they have encountered the world just sort of not fitting them very well, which has kind of made me feel without being too sort of over the top, like actually slightly emotional because 
they have said, I just thought there was something wrong with me. And I'm now realising, actually, it's not me. There's nothing wrong with me. It's that the world isn't designed to fit me. Your book talks about the discriminatory design behind public transport, about how the uniforms of people in the police force and the construction industry don't fit women's bodies with often Mm -hmm. dangerous results. But you also in the book come back to focus on the technology industry a lot. Why Mm -hmm. is that? Why do you think there's that focus? One of the things that I'm very concerned about is that the algorithms that sort of increasingly run our lives from algorithms that scan CVs to decide whether you get the job to algorithms that decide or that that determine how voice recognition software works, they are all based and trained on databases that have a massive data gap. That is, that they are based on databases that are massively biased towards men. And so as a result they are unable to cater to women very well. So, I mean, one example would be voice recognition software is trained on databases that are massively biased towards male voices. And so anything that has voice recognition software from a car to, you know, Alexa is much less likely to recognise a female voice. And that can be annoying, but it can be in a car potentially very distracting. And the other issue, I suppose, is that algorithms tend to be proprietary software, which means we don't get to actually analyse them and look at whether or not designers are catering for the fact that their data is massively flawed. So all we can see is the effect, and the effect certainly suggests that they're not. You mentioned some things I never even thought about. For example, Unicode, which is the group that chooses basically what emojis end up on people's smartphones. They even had this default towards the male in their design. That's one of the things I really want to get across in the book is that this isn't a vast conspiracy. This isn't people deliberately excluding women. This is just a massive cultural bias and default towards the male. And actually what was really interesting, I thought, about the Unicode example, one of the reasons I included it, was that actually Unicode didn't gender their their codes. So police officer, construction worker, doctor, scientist, these were all gender neutral, actually, in in their code and, and what they said it was. They didn't say male police officer. They didn't say male runner. It was just all the platforms interpreted that as a male runner, as a, pol- a male police officer. So the reason we now have male and female is that Unicode decided to sp- specifically say, OK, this is the male one and this is the female one. Because when it was gender neutral, everyone interpreted it as male. And I think that that just really highlights the level of problem that we have that every single platform, without thinking, just saw gender neutral and decided to to put a man in. It even came down to the size of a smartphone. I think everyone would notice at the moment that smartphones verge on the ginormous, especially Mm -hmm. the new Apple ones, you know, the the size of two of my hands, potentially. (laughs) And you try to get to the bottom of that. Why are women being ignored, potentially? Or do women want giant smartphones too? What did you find there? Well, the difficulty with that is that it's basically impossible to get anything out of Apple. <laughs> they they just sort of ignored me. And and I've been assured that this is not just me, that they are, you know, they tend not to sort of answer questions about this. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on there. But I can only surmise based on the male dominance within the tech industry that it's partly a problem. You know, as I said, I don't think that this is a conspiracy. It's partly a problem of just sort of not realising. The the knowledge just isn't there. And that is because it does fit into a male hand. And if you are testing mainly on men, and if mainly men are 
designing your products, these kinds of errors are going to creep in. One example, this isn't specifically about tech, but I think it's a really useful example for highlighting how representation matters in, ter- in this sort of area, is an example from Sheryl Sandberg um, in her book Lean In. She wrote about how she got pregnant when she was working at Google. And by that point, Google was already, you know, a pretty big organization and they had a very big car park. And she was struggling to walk across the car park. And because she was in a position of power, a position of leadership, she was able to go to the head of Google and say, you need to put in pregnancy parking. And the head of Google said, yes, of course, that had never occurred to me. And she says that she felt, you know, sort of embarrassed and bad that it hadn't occurred to her either until she became pregnant. But I think that that is exactly the point. There is no particular reason why men would know that <laughs> when you're pregnant, it it is difficult to walk across a car park. I wouldn't know that. I've never been pregnant. There's no reason Sheryl Sandberg should have known it either. But it took a woman being in a position of leadership to get pregnant and suffer from that issue for that to be solved. And that is now solved not just for Sheryl Sandberg and the women at the top, but for women from the top to the bottom of that organisation now benefit from that. And I suppose also where collecting gender data comes in is that I feel like Google could have collected that data before. You know, they could have spoken to their female workers and said, what do you need? But the reality is it does often take a woman being in a position of power for these kinds of issues to get addressed. I was also uh, struck in the book and it (laughs) made me reflect on my own purchases that I'm paying for technology that might not be built for me, might not function as well for me as for a man. And one way that is, as you explain in the book, is that women are more likely to carry their mobile phone in their bag or something like that rather than in their back pocket like a man, which actually makes a lot of those fitness trackers that people might use a little less accurate, a little less useful. That had never mm-hmm. struck me before. Were there any other examples like that where the typical use of technology just doesn't suit how many women would use it? So yeah, I think actually my favourite examples of tech not working for women come from Apple. Sorry, Apple, I know I'm kind of picking on them, but they have provided some truly outstanding examples. So when Siri, the the AI on Apple products was first released, she, and it was uh, she by default in the US, could tell you the nearest place to buy Viagra, but couldn't tell you where you could get an abortion. It could tell you if you were having a heart attack. And I rather suspect, although I don't actually know, that it may not have been so useful for telling you if a woman was having a heart attack, because that was one of the other things I found in the book, that female heart attack symptoms just aren't accounted for. But it couldn't tell you where you could find your nearest rape crisis centre because it didn't understand what you meant if you said, I've been raped. Another thing that I found, again, outstanding was that when they released their health kit, which was meant to be comprehensive, and that's their words, not mine, it was pretty comprehensive in that it could track your copper intake and something called molybdenum, which I still don't know what it is. I should probably look that up. But it couldn't track your period. That is just staggering to me. So the idea that a health tracking system can be comprehensive without including tracking for one of the most important things. I mean, you know, a woman's period is one of the vital signs, you know, alongside, you know, how you're breathing and your heart rate. So for a woman, it's actually an incredibly important thing to track. And of course, like none of those things are particularly 
life-threatening but it does just illustrate the level of the issue that we're dealing with that something as obvious as period tracking was excluded from this supposedly comprehensive tracking system. Obviously you're an activist and a campaigner as well as an author you've got all this data behind you now put together in this book what do you plan to do with it what do you want the impact to be? I just want people to start collecting sex disaggregated data you know it's not a complicated ask it seems complicated because we just don't do it and you know there are all sorts of excuses like women are too complicated it's too expensive but those are just excuses and frankly they're not good enough either you value women's lives or you don't caroline criado perez there and her new book is called invisible women data bias in a world designed for men and thanks also to my panel today, Claire Riley, Senior Editor at CNET, and Ray Johnston, Editor at Junkie. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. I'm Ariel Bogle, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.